Welcome to Medical Matters Weekly with Dr. Trey Dobson, presented by Southwestern Vermont Healthcare and Catamount Access Television. Welcome, everyone. Today is September 28th, 2022, and this is a live show. I'm Trey Dobson, Chief Medical Officer at Southwestern Vermont Medical Center and an emergency medicine physician with Dartmouth Health. And this is Medical Matters Weekly, a show about the aspects of healthcare that matter to you most. My guest today is Dr. Stephen Higgins. He is one of the nation's leading researchers on drug use and addiction. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Higgins. Oh, I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I'm going to just read a, a few of um, his bullet points on his bio, and then you can look up the rest on our website. Uh, the Virginia H. Donaldson Endowed Professor of Translational Science. That's a pretty big uh, title in the yeah. Departments of Psychiatry and Psychology at the University of Vermont. Also serves as the Vice Chair of Psychiatry, uh, the Principal Investigator on numerous studies through the NIH. We've talked about the NIH multiple times on this show. Uh, author of more than 425 journal articles. I can't even read 425 journal articles. Uh, nonetheless, can't, can't write those either, uh, as well as book chapters uh, and then many other things. So again, welcome and tell us a little bit, uh, Stephen, where are you right now? Well, I'm at in my office in Burlington, Vermont at the University of Vermont. And yeah, so happy and excited to uh, chat with you today. That's great. We're excited to have you. Before we get in a little bit to the uh, subject matter, I just want to know a little bit about you, where you're from and, and how you actually got into psychology. Sure, sure. Thanks for asking. Um, so I am originally from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. That's where I was born. I left at around age 17 to head off to college. Um, and I was born into a um, blue collar family right in the heart of Philadelphia, grew up in a row home. Um, and then I went off to college in um, Shippensburg, Pennsylvania, a small town in South Central Pennsylvania, um, which was a great fit. I was first in my family to go to college and, and it just worked out beautifully. Um, so that's the that's kind of the way of background. Um, I ended up a psychology major um, at Shippensburg, but it was through exploration. I, I didn't have a clue. <laughs> I just wanted to get accepted and that worked out. And then I uh, I enjoyed it. I found that um, that all went a lot better if you actually read the materials you were supposed to read, unlike me in high school. And uh, I had a great experience and eventually found psychology and have been studying it ever since. And then you, you started focusing on, on addiction and, yeah. and drug use. So yeah. what, what drew you? I mean, and actually, I will say pretty early, um, as opposed to right now, fortunately, uh, we've woken up and we're really studying it, but but not even a decade or two ago, there was cer certainly a dearth of people going into the field. Yeah. So it's all kind of coincidental. When I was in Philadelphia growing up, um, there was an epidemic of um, first was methamphetamine and then heroin in the um, late 1960s, early 1970s. And it hit the neighborhood. I was living in hard. And so I knew a lot of people who were impacted. I wasn't impacted directly, but indirectly by, um, you know, watching my friends go through, through that. And, um, but it isn't what really led me into study it as a profession. Um, when I found psychology at, at Shippensburg, 
I get interested in a um, type of, well, experimental psychology and behavioral psychology, the study of conditioning and learning and that sort of thing. And it just attracted me because it's pretty concrete coming from a blue collar neighborhood and, you know, background. I like concrete things. I like emergency medicine. I see that I haven't ever done it, but it seems concrete. And um, so I was attracted to it and um, did pretty well as an undergraduate and realized that to advance in psychology, I had to go to graduate school. And so I did so. And in, in that process, I, I came to learn that it also, this behavioral psychology um, was, was a um, effective method for studying addictions. And so um, I started reading about that while I was in graduate school. I really wasn't working. I actually um, did my dissertation with preschool children, but I was studying this operant conditioning and learning type of psychology that was being applied at other centers um, to study addiction. And so I got very interested. It was like a side job, <laughs> um, something I was studying mostly on my own, but I had another colleague in graduate school who was very interested. And so um, we applied for postdoctoral training at Johns Hopkins, where they specialized in behavioral approaches, behavioral pharmacology approaches to the study of addiction. And we got accepted and off we went to Baltimore and the rest is history. I, I just started, um, but I, I think I had the advantage from, it wasn't new to me, it was scientifically, but I had seen it, I had witnessed it as a teenager. So I was familiar with the so devastating how, effects, but yeah. Yeah. So you use those terms, <clears throat> by the way, thank you for that background. Yeah. You use those terms, behavioral economics, behavioral pharmacology, you know, tell the audience, what, what does that really mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, there are two related, but somewhat, you know, separate disciplines. So behavioral economics is the um, application of psychology to microeconomics. And um, people who, who advanced it have done very well winning Nobel Prizes. And, and the, this central theme of it is that um, traditional economics had assumed that people were made choices rationally and very um, calculated, cerebral um, decision-making. And what the, the um, pioneers in behavioral economics observed was people aren't rational in how they make choices. And most of us, once you hear that, can reflect, you know, we can be very emotional. Sometimes we're looking uh, down the road, what's in our best interest. But sometimes we, we make kind of um, hasty or quick decisions that aren't necessarily rational or thought through. And um, that was a, an eye opener in economics and um, studies were done and they supported that irrationality is a part of human behavior. And it's almost laughable when, you know, we think of once we know that answer, but traditional economics had asserted that it was and understanding irrationality and how it, the factors that go along with it influence decision making can help you understand addiction, which, you know, gr grabs a, a, a takes a tremendous hold on behavior, but it's not rational. I mean, most 
current cigarette smokers would like not to be cigarette smokers, but they continue smoking. And same thing with opioid use disorder and whatnot. So that's the approach. So behavioral pharmacology is um, not too different. It, it, it's the application of uh, behavioral science, mostly conditioning and learning to general pharmacology. And you can apply that in a number of different areas, including addiction. And so those are the two kind of um, toolboxes I bring to the study of addiction, behavioral pharmacology and, the, and behavioral economics. So when you, um, by the way, that what you're saying makes so much sense, and it's kind of how uh, we should have been thinking about things all along, but obviously there are differences. There are certain people that are more vulnerable uh, to uh, making these irrational decisions, I suppose. What, what has your research uncovered in yeah. regards to vulnerability? Oh, yeah, there's no question that there are individual differences. I'd like to emphasize that we're all vulnerable, say, to addiction. We all, but there are differences in how vulnerable. Um, so one of the um, areas of research that supports what I just asserted there is the drugs that we like um, that cause addiction to humans like and use, um, non-humans will, will take as well, self-administer and voluntarily ingest cocaine, heroin. And it's not that they'll take any drug. If you give them some like an antipsychotic drug or something, they won't take that drug. But drugs that cause euphoria, drugs that humans enjoy taking, non-human animals that have, no, you know, it isn't that their mothers treated them badly. It isn't anything else that it makes their brain change in ways that, that it increases the likelihood they'll do it again. We call that reinforcement. Um, but not all non-humans and not all humans are the same. So why, what's, what are the differences we've learned about? One of them that's pretty central and that is easy to understand is um, drugs produce their effects reliably and immediately. And that's very important in terms of conditioning. So um, the, there's this process that we all should learn more about in high school and undergraduate psychology class, whatnot. But this reinforcement process is very, very powerful. And it it's, um, works through the dopamine system. And it kind of tells us when decisions produce positive outcomes versus um, negative outcomes, to speak um, you know, in general terms. And um, so it so happens that drugs that, that people abuse produce stimulation in the brain reward centers that indicate this is positive, this is adaptive, this is a good thing to do. But of course it isn't. It's just that when those brains evolved, there wasn't cocaine or heroin around. Um, you know, so, so it wasn't part of the evolutionary history that we all share. Um, so, so um People who are more, so this is another factor on top of what I just said, people who are more inclined to immediate reinforcement, I, I want it now rather than later, are more vulnerable to the reinforcing effects of drugs or other events that act um, on these reward centers. So we're all vulnerable. We all have these, thank goodness, we all have these brain reward centers that signal what you what's, you know, works out well and what doesn't. So you can be more effective going down the road. But, um, 
but there's there's some challenges that some things that give that signal really aren't healthy. And drugs would be the great example. Gambling is another example, same process. So people, we, we have tests that we can give you that measure how much you, what we call discount delayed events, events that are, are going to come down the road. And so we do, we do it by, we start out like, would you like $1,000 today or $1,000 a week from now? Well, everybody that, that's thinking clearly is going to say, well, I'll take it today. Why, why wait? But then I can say, would you like $1,000 today or $900, or $900 today or $1,000 a week from now? And some people would say, oh, well, I'll wait a week. But others might say, I'm not going to wait a week. I need money now. I'll take the lesser amount. And we can do that until we can individually identify just how much you discount delayed rewards. And those who discount waiting for the reward at a greater extent are more vulnerable to uh, drug addiction and a lot of other unhealthy behavior patterns. So that's one example of that's that's like a blend of conditioning theory and behavioral economics that helps us understand addiction and predict, you know, who, who may be more vulnerable than, than uh, another. Right. Over for the audience, over a given population, not necessarily hundred percent with the individual in front of you, but over a given population. Um, Absolutely. Very is, good. Very important point. Yeah. And, and you mentioned in some of your writings, you, you mentioned regulatory science. What is regulatory science? Yeah, yeah. So regulatory science is just trying to um, apply science to uh, regulatory policy. Um, so, you know, we have regulations around um, environmental protection and um, drug development and that sort of thing. So where it intersects with, with my career is in 2009, for the first time, the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, got regulatory authority over tobacco. And so cigarette smoking in particular is the biggest killer drug, you know, related to substance use and addiction that there is. Globally, it kills uh, prematurely 8 million people every year. And when you reflect on that, in the United States, um, about 480,000 every year, year in, year out. Um, and so it's a tremendously um, addictive and harmful uh, substance. But for years, the um, tobacco growing states, the politicians, for economic reasons, kept that out of the FDA. We couldn't regulate tobacco manufacturing and distribution, but now we can so as of 2009, federal legislation said you could. It went to the FDA, took them a couple of years to build up the office within the FDA that would take on this, this responsibility. And then um, to their credit, they wanted to do evidence-based regulations. And so they started um, what they call tobacco centers of regulatory science. And you had to submit applications to get one, uh, to be a center, and there were, in the first phase, there were 13 across the country, most recent phase, nine, and UVM um, was fortunate that our applications were um, accepted and approved. And so we've been doing tobacco regulatory science, but our biggest focus intersects with the question you asked uh, before this one, and that is uh, we focus on vulnerable populations. 
So I talked about that discounting, but um, that's like a basic mechanism involved, but there are other characteristics of vulnerability. So socioeconomic disadvantage leads people to stay more here and now. What's going to have, you're trying to survive. You're not thinking about down the road. You're thinking about today. You might be hungry. You need to pay bills. So your focus is very present focus. You're more vulnerable to the effects of tobacco and other drugs. Um, Certain populations that are stigmatized uh, seem to have that same effect that it makes them very, you know, it brings out like a survival approach to to life and and that leaves them vulnerable. Um, So we focus for the FDA on how their tobacco policies may impact vulnerable populations or will they reach vulnerable populations and benefit them? Um, And so one we're looking at uh, currently that's exciting to me (laughs) um, is the idea that they would reduce the nicotine in cigarettes, which is the constituent in cigarette smoke that causes addiction. They'll reduce it to minimally addictive levels. The politicians still prevent, you can't just take it out, which would be, (laughs) that's too straightforward. That'd be the simplest thing. Um, But they legally, you can't do that, but you can take, FDA can take it to minimally addictive levels or very low levels. And so that's what we're researching currently for the FDA. What, do you how see did, that moving forward? Um, pardon me? Do you see that moving forward in the near term that, um, that the levels of nicotine will be uh, reduced in cigarettes? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's um, they've made the public announcement. They have to give advance warning that they're um, considering a policy. So they did that, I think it was 2018 or 19. And then um, the Biden administration more recently, 2021, um, made an announcement that they are moving forward. Now, that doesn't still say they will get it done, but they are, they take it seriously and, and the policymakers are, are doing their due diligence to move this policy forward. Then I'm sure there'll be legal battles and whatnot, but the tobacco manufacturers see it coming. They know. Um, and, you know, so it's, I guess the best I could say is the evidence suggests they should do it. Um, in my opinion, my humble opinion, that's not the FDA's opinion. Um, it has a pretty substantial impact on, on smoking. It reduces smoking. It increased the likelihood people would want to quit, that sort of thing, because those are the studies that we do, including populations that are that have a lot of difficulty quitting, like people who have comorbid opioid use disorder. When they'd like to quit, but they have challenge. Uh, you know, it's very, very difficult for them. And the evidence suggests that this policy would reach those more vulnerable populations. So, so there's a lot of a lot of scientific evidence that would suggest it would be a good policy. But whether legally they can, you know, surmount all their hurdles, we'll we'll have to see. Yeah, I just want to highlight. We appreciate so much that work that you and your colleagues are doing because it is important to have evidence uh, guide our decisions. Um, you know, even as as scientists, the smartest scientists, if they went off anecdotal um, thoughts, they would make wrong decisions. And that's why you need that science to say, yes, this actually does impact. And then you can devote the resources towards it, because if it doesn't, we don't want to devote the resources to it. We want we want to put them where we're going to get some you know benefit from it. It makes complete sense that if you reduce the um, the uh, addictive properties, then 
then the use should go down. Uh, but verifying that, I think, is is very important. And I'm glad that you and your colleagues have done that. You also um, have worked uh, with some studies and research on cocaine use and and actually paying people not to to use the drug. Tell us about that. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Yeah. So it, it relates back to that, po- that uh, process I was talking about, that delayed discounting and wanting things sooner rather than later. So um, this was back in the late 1980s, um, where there was a cocaine epidemic in the U.S. like there is now with opioids. And, um, and this time, the, um, the scientific community got completely, the, the whole U.S. culture, I would say, was caught off guard that somehow we thought that cocaine was safe or relatively safe. Um, and then we start seeing that not at all. You remember there were, well, that, I don't know, remember in your lifetime, but it's in the history of it, that um, that people were singing. Eric Clapton had a song, Cocaine, Cocaine, or I don't know, maybe it was another band, I don't know who exactly. But, but there were songs about how good a drug it was and whatnot. Everything was honky-dory. The jet set people were using it. And then all of a sudden, things start changing. They were finding out that it was very, very addictive. So the F- the uh, National Institutes of Health, NIH, put out calls for proposals because they had everything that was already available for treating addiction did not work for cocaine. So <laughs> we were just newly, um, I was just new at the University of Vermont, and I had some colleagues that were new. We were new assistant professors and um we saw the proposal and we thought about what we knew at the time uh, about addiction and put together a proposal to try and treat cocaine in outpatient setting. The demand for treatment was, was too large to, to plan a hospitalization, and that didn't seem to work anyhow. The evidence would suggest that you need to do it in an outpatient setting that's uh, you know, dealing with larger, larger populations. And so... Um, So one of the things that we had already been playing around with is if you um, provide people who um, need immediate gratification with material incentives, financial incentives would be a good choice, um, that are readily available, that are are guaranteed, just like drugs that always do what they're supposed to do, if the person can show us they haven't used drugs since the last time we saw them, they will get this reward. And, um, and we chose these vouchers that would, could be exchangeable for retail items in the community, but, but we oversaw how the spending went. It had to be things that, um, that couldn't promote the addiction further. They had to be going in the opposite direction that you know, would promote uh, healthy living. But it could, you know, then you they could decide what that might look like. And if we were in general agreement, then, then they could they could exchange the voucher for the product. And um, lo and behold, it worked. And so people at that time didn't even believe that you had addiction in Vermont. That was in our grant applications. We have to make now you you play up that rural and you know rural resonance is a vulnerability, but then you had to make pretend you were really like a small um, metropolitan area. Burlington is a small metropolitan area and we do have addiction and we came on to this treatment and um, we, we didn't see it as the final treatment. We saw it as a way of engaging the individual 
into the treatment process and then teaching them how to get naturalistic reward for healthy choices from their community. And it was initially dismissed as it's not a real thing because you did it in Vermont, but then we replicated in Baltimore and then we replicated in Los Angeles um, and we did it with uh, minority populations. And, and to this day, it's the only intervention that works for psychomotor stimulant use, which we're now again in a crisis with psychomotor stimulants. You probably know from the emergency department. In clinical trials, it's the only thing that works. We still don't have a medication and we still don't have a, an efficacious behavioral treatment. But policymakers, despite the evidence, are reluctant to provide reimbursement for incentives. So we're still fighting the battle. And um, this week, well, next week on October um, 6th and 7th, we will have an annual conference here at the University of Vermont. And the focus is what that, that treatment approach is called contingency management just another term for financial incentives. And so we'll all be meeting federal policymakers will be either coming in person or um, they can zoom in um, and we'll be discussing how, how to get this implemented. We have people dying with methamphetamine and cocaine overdose again, and we have no other treatment. Why are we not using 30 years of evidence? Well, I think we're gonna win the battle, it just takes time. Mm -hmm. um, well, yeah. we have to get through the the stigma of people saying, you know, it's their fault. It's their fault this happened to them. Yet they would never say that about many types of other medical illnesses we deal with, uh, many types of cancers and things. That's um, right. But they see this and they think it's it's just their fault. They they could have prevented this, and they don't they don't realize it. And unfortunately, this opioid epidemic is actually bringing it even more to the forefront because the same people saying that are now having relatives, family members, friends uh, succumb to this uh, situation. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your experience uh, in, in, in watching and observing the opioid epidemic? Oh yeah, um, it's not been fun. And I, I can I could share because I'm sure it's the case with people in your audience. I, I actually lost a nephew um, to, to the opioid epidemic. He, he was... Um, in Philadelphia and, and I was up here, I did what I could to help him, but uh, he relapsed and, and had a fatal overdose. Um, so so I've, I've witnessed it, I've felt it, it's, it's, it's really a terrible epidemic. Um, and um, we saw signs of the emergence of opioid use in our cocaine sample um, decades ago, so we had, when we were doing open up the clinic for cocaine here in Vermont, we also opened up one for opioid use, but the two populations saw themselves as very distinct. They didn't even want to share a waiting room. We, we discovered that like, uh, I may have addiction, but I'm not like those other guys, you know, they, they so they had their own stigmas about uh, different subgroups. Um, but I started to see opioid use showing up in the urine of the people who were uh, in treatment for cocaine, but I, I didn't recognize it for the emergence of this epidemic. And then it gradually escalated and it moved into communities that had not previously been impacted much by opioid addiction. And so they were unprepared. Vermont would be a good example, unprepared to, to uh, 
to treat the problem or to manage the problem. And um, it was out of control before we really started to rally the troops and try and do something um, effective in terms of uh, curtailing the epidemic. I think um, Vermont can be proud that, that they um, were in the forefront of, of really uh, stepping up. And our governor um, made a state of the union mess, whatever it is for the governor, state of the state address acknowledging that Vermont had an opioid epidemic and that it's best to not deny it and let's deal with it straight on. So they developed this hub and spoke uh, model. And um, the idea was that the demand was so great that we're gonna have to try and um, bring in the um, primary care docs. But, and well, where I should start is we need medications. So the evidence was clear that the best way, and maybe not never the only way, but the best way, um, scientifically supported way to get opioid use under control was to use these substitute medications, methadone, buprenorphine. So that was the first, and, and Vermont rallied to make those medications available. But if we we're going to do it at the scale that you need to do, we're going to have to bring in the primary care docs. But primary care docs, you know, they're trained to treat a wide variety of, of conditions and not necessarily addictions. So they don't, they are not equipped to come treat some of the other things that come along with addiction. And so the idea was more complicated patients that had a lot of comorbid conditions, maybe disruptive behavior, they would be in the hub. And once the behavior was under control, the, the, the condition was being managed well, then they could move out into the primary care docs in people's communities. So patients didn't have to travel to the uh, hubs and that sort of thing. And it worked pretty well. And, um, and then the Christ, the epidemic was spreading and especially to other rural states. And so then they started getting on the phone and calling uh, John Brooklyn was one of the pioneers in that model. Stacy Sigmund, one of my close colleagues here, John Brooklyn is a colleague for many years. Um, they, they would travel Rick Rawson um, to the other states and help them get pub, uh, hub and smoke spoke models established. And so that's kind of, most states that are wrestling with the crisis have some variation if they're if they're not still denying that they have the epidemic, um, some variation of the hub and spoke. And um, I think I think it works pretty well. The medications work very well. Um, but now this um, the psychomotor stimulants I mentioned, they have made a resurgence and they have in particular shown up in people who have opioid use disorder. So they were at risk of them undermining the success of the hub and spoke or the medications that we're using. So these things keeps us all, all um, working hard. I'm sure you see all the things I'm talking about in the emergency department. But, um, but I think that's why this, this conference I talked about and, and the push for implementation of the incentives is that this is this risk undermining the progress we made with opioid use disorder. We have to use evidence-based interventions. The incentives are really the best we have right now. And to Governor Newsom's credit or California policymakers' credits, they made a decision. They're going statewide with financial incentives. 
and you know they'll figure it out but we're not holding back any longer and so that's good and other states as often happens with california for good or for bad other states are following so i'm optimistic <clears throat> yeah no, thank you so much for those comments and um and yes uh, you know being in the emergency department for nearly 20 years now i've i've watched and and i tell you it's it's hard i understand um why people have questions why people think that uh, this isn't their problem but in reality we we talk about in healthcare is maintaining and even developing compassion for things that we may not can explain and that's okay um as you mentioned earlier <clears throat> i believe it was in regards to cigarettes but any type of addiction um you know 99.9% .9 of these people or all of them don't want to be addicted and these could be our children uh, these could be our parents these could be our friends could be us and if we can just have that understanding and say it's okay if we can't explain it but we need to have compassion and frankly um, we've done a super job uh, recently at at making access to treatment available uh, as far as medication assisted therapy but I, I believe we're going to have to do even a little bit better. You know, as an emergency physician, I see people come in pretty often, especially weekends, off hours that, you know, have legitimate reasons why they missed their dose or were unable to um, to get to their medication. And now they present and, it, and it's quite difficult to try to get them where they need to be. It takes a lot of time and resources. And so I think we can improve upon that. Uh, and we will, you know, unfortunately, also, it seems like every six months to a year, I hear new news that I just can't believe is happening. And I think we've all heard over the past couple of weeks about these fentanyl, um, not analogs, but actually fentanyl that is just being packaged uh, in a way that makes it look like innocent candy. And we knew that was coming. In fact, it's been out there, but now it's much more prevalent to the point that people who would never think about taking fentanyl are at a college party. Uh, they're handed this. Um, they may not have even done any illicit substances, uh, but they end up taking the medication. Maybe they've had a couple of drinks and their, you know, their um, uh, their ability to say no to something has diminished. And so we're going to start seeing those folks, too. So it's important that we have not only the ability to treatment, but this awareness. One of the reasons we're doing this podcast today, one of the reasons you do your research and then just an acceptance uh, by all that even if you can't explain something, we have to have the compassion or else uh, it, this is going to get, you know, even worse. And, and we, we can't tolerate that in society. Uh, tell us at the end here, uh, what are you looking forward to both personally and professionally over the next year or two, Dr. Higgins? Well, well I have a new granddaughter. I had my <clears throat> first new granddaughter um, this past October, my first granddaughter, first grandchild, which is a granddaughter. And our second is coming this October in a couple of weeks. And um, um, definitely, and we know already it's another girl. And so my wife and I and the whole family are just over the moon about that. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, we have um, grant applications professionally. We have grant applications submitted to continue our center on tobacco regulatory science and then consider continue this second center that we have that's on the impact um, of lifestyle on uh, risk for chronic disease and premature death. So same kinds of things we've been talking about, but a little broader than smoking, like physical inactivity, um, not adhering to medication regimens, those sorts of things, or other behavior patterns that are similar in some forms to, to addictions, but impact um, 
quality of life and longevity. So, so I'm hoping that we succeed. They're very, these grants are very competitive. And so, so um, fingers crossed on that. Um, and then the ski season coming up and fall foliage before that. So just looking to enjoy life. It's great. Well, thank you, Dr. Stephen Higgins. We appreciate so much the work you're doing. Thanks for joining us on Medical Matters Weekly. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. It was really a pleasure. I'll also thank Mike Cutler from CAT TV, Ray Smith from Southwestern Vermont Healthcare, Ashley Jowett from Southwestern Vermont Healthcare. I'm Trey Dobson. Go out and find joy in everything you do, even in the face of adversity, and we will see you again next week. <laughs>